Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? We're going to continue... What I started last Monday, which was an episode about uh, music tech and business. And boy, howdy, does this get complicated. And before we jump right into streaming, which is kind of where I left off in the last episode, there actually are a few things that I should cover that I skipped over in that last episode about how music, technology, and business are all intertwined. They all have a massive effect on each other. Uh, I mentioned the concept of royalties in the last episode. That is, it's, it's a fee paid to a composer or copyright owner for the use or purchase of a work. So if I write a song that's included on an album, I'm presuming I've got a contract that guarantees me a certain amount of royalties, a percentage, then I am owed a bit of money for every sale of that album. Uh, it might actually be a very tiny amount of money. And first, you know, if I were if I was paid in advance, that advance must be paid off before I start getting royalties. But eventually, I do get that cash. Uh, 
But what about public performances of my song? Like, what about if my song is played on the radio or if it's played on the sound system of a restaurant or a bar or a theater or something like that? Well, technically, I'm owed royalties for that as well. This was determined in the United States way back in 1909 when the Copyrights Act was signed into law. And in the very earliest days, it was up to the individual composers and IP owners to reach out and collect royalties and licensing fees from the parties that were publicly performing those songs. And as you can imagine, that's time-consuming and difficult. Especially if you're talking about like a single composer reaching out to every radio station that might be playing your work. That gets really tough. And keeping them honest and being able to get them to pay the royalty fees, the actually really the licensing fees, so that they can legally play your work on their stuff, difficult. Now, granted, in the early days of radio, we were mostly talking about live performances anyway and not recorded ones, but you get my, my meaning. So in 1914, a whole bunch of composers and publishers led by Victor Herbert founded an organization in the U.S. called the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, a.k.a. ASCAP, A-S-C-A-P. This organization would perform the services of licensing music on behalf of its members and collecting royalties on behalf for those members. So, in other words, if you if you belong to ASCAP, you didn't have to worry about doing this yourself. So joining the group would give the publishers and composers and IP holders the benefit of not having to go after various public performance venues. ASCAP would do it for them. So if you ever hear about ASCAP fees, that's what it refers to. It is just one of many organizations that performs this task. ASCAP is not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. Now, as time went on, more groups like ASCAP would form. ASCAP mainly focuses on America, the United States in particular. It does maintain offices in a couple of other countries as well, but really, it primarily focuses on America and American artists. Uh, also, ASCAP has had a pretty interesting history itself. I could probably do a full episode just about ASCAP. Uh, prior to 1940, ASCAP would demand a 5% royalty fee for broadcast performances of songs. So in other words, whatever revenue the radio station was bringing in at that particular time, 5% of that would go to the uh, the license holder because of that, that fee. In 1940, the nonprofit organization increased that fee up to a staggering 15%. Now, let's say that you run a radio station. Okay, so you're on the other side of this. Your job is to figure out what music you're going to play in order to fill up airtime. And you happen to see that any song that's covered by ASCAP comes with a 15% royalty fee for that time that you're actually broadcasting that that song, you're probably going to look at music that's uh, outside of ASCAP in that, that uh, case, right? Because it's such a high fee. And a bunch of broadcasters did just that. The broadcasters did the same thing that the composers had done back in 1914. They got together and they created a different performing rights organization. This one was called Broadcast Music Incorporated, or BMI. So if you've heard about ASCAP or BMI, that's where this comes from. Now, upon the formation of BMI, the members of ASCAP saw a serious threat here. Like, it was very clear that uh, 
those who were covered by BMI were definitely going to get radio play. And those who were covered by ASCAP definitely were not because of those higher fees. So ASCAP then readjusted their royalty demands all the way down to 2.8% royalty instead of 15. And again, there are tons of other performance rights organizations out there. You know, one of them is SOCAN, S-O-C-A-N, that's out of Canada. There's BUMA, B-U-M-A, that's out of the Netherlands. But there are dozens of these. And each country pretty much has its own and more than one in several cases. And they all pretty much do the same thing on behalf of their members. They license music and they collect fees. Uh, and we'll come back to them in a bit because the way they work with music streaming services matters. It matters a lot. And it is one of those cases that uh, we often hear about whenever a music streaming service is making a, an argument that uh, the fees they pay out might be might lead to their destruction. Pandora has had that argument a couple of times, in fact. All right. Now let's cover something that a Twitter follower named John Weber uh, pointed out last week. Uh, they pointed out that the changes in media formats from vinyl to 8-track to cassette to CD to MP3 all had an impact on consumers and the industry. And I didn't really touch on that, how the actual changes in media had an impact on how the industry made money and how artists got paid. And the reason I didn't go into it was largely because it just gets super duper complicated, but it's a valid thing to point out. So we're going to try and cover a little bit of it. Keeping in mind, like I said, this gets really complex. Now, first, a really obvious way that the creation of eight tracks and cassettes would have on the music industry was that for the first time, recorded music became really portable. So vinyl records are great, and they allow us to listen to our favorite songs or albums when we're at home. Or, you know, if there's like a jukebox that has vinyl albums in it or something like that. But it's not typically the kind of format that lends itself to portable listening. Not that some auto manufacturers didn't give it the old college try. There actually are a few different auto-mounted phonograph-type devices. And in fact, it goes back decades. Um, Chrysler offered a highway hi-fi package on several car models uh, in the early 60s. The system required proprietary records that spun at 16 and two-thirds RPM. So you couldn't just put your own vinyl collection on there. You had to buy all new records that were designed to rotate at this particular speed at 16 and two-thirds revolutions per minute. Only Columbia Records was making those albums, by the way. So the system wasn't a huge success. In fact, it was a, a flop, probably due to it both being really expensive, like it was a big upgrade to, you know, have it installed in your new vehicle. And you were also really limited to just those special records that Columbia produced. So not only were you only limited to artists that were represented by Columbia, uh, it was the subset of those artists that Columbia actually made these special records for that you could even choose from. So not great from a consumer standpoint. There were a couple of other attempts to bring vinyl albums to cars. Uh, and in fact, you can find examples of this if you look around. In fact, I'm sure there are cars out there on the market that still have some of these things installed. But th they typically had really big drawbacks, like even the ones that were designed in such a way where you wouldn't get skipping with the needle, 
Because, uh, you know, you would think like if you're driving down, say, a bumpy road, then the needle's going to skip around on your record. That's going to be terrible. Well, they found ways of making sure that the needle would stay connected to the, the album, even if you went down a bumpy road. However, that also meant the needle would wear out the album faster. So, in other words, the more you listen to a particular record, the more you were wearing it out and you would eventually have to replace it. So this really made way for the birth of cartridge and cassette technologies, which would store music on magnetic tape rather than in grooves on a disc. Uh, so in the early 1960s, you got the cassette tape, but the original cassette tape was terrible. And so it, it really didn't take off. Like in the early 60s, the cassette tape tried to make a dent, but the audio quality was so bad that no one really wanted it. But then the Ampex Magnetic Company partnered with RCA Records, the Learjet Company, and the Ford Motor Company, and collectively they designed the 8-track tape, specifically for the purposes of having an in-car audio system where drivers could bring along their own music and not depend upon radio broadcasts. Now, at this time, really, most cars only had an AM radio. Uh, FM had not made a lot of penetration yet. And so AM was pretty limited, and this was considered to be a big, big boost. And the technology began to make its way into vehicles in 1965, and by the end of 65, there were more than 60,000 Ford vehicles that had an 8-track player installed in them. Now, 8-tracks had some big advantages over vinyl, uh, particularly the systems that had been developed for cars. For one thing, the audio quality was really good, at least at first. For another... They were far more portable than vinyl albums and, and vinyl players. The exteriors of these cartridges were pretty durable, so you didn't have to worry about getting, you know, like a scratch on your cartridge and then your music's going to skip. But these 8-tracks also had some big downsides, too. One is that the 8-track had a sort of never-ending loop inside it, which was one way only. So you couldn't rewind to listen to an earlier song. You had to go around the horn. You had to go through the entire length of the tape to come back around to the song again. I think, in fact, I know several times in the past, I've talked about turning over an 8-track. That's not right. No, it's that there's a never-ending loop inside the 8-track. So eventually the loop comes back round again, and you're able to listen to the music that's on that part of the loop. Um, but you can't rewind. You can't go backward. Um, you, uh, another big down downside to eight tracks was that the capacity of your average eight track tape was less than what you could fit on a full vinyl album. So the eight track would not be able to hold all the songs that you would find on the full vinyl album version of whatever you were buying. So if you went out and bought, uh, the vinyl and the eight track of the same artist's album, the eight track would be missing a few tracks typically. Uh, also, the magnetic tape in the 8-track would degrade over time, so one common issue was that sound from one track would start to bleed into the next track. Kind of like what happens when uh, you are listening to a radio station and you start moving into another radio station's broadcast range and they start to mesh with each other. Very disconcerting. Uh, also, the tape was pretty flimsy, uh, so if it caught on stuff, it could easily break, and that was another big uh downside to them. Uh, they did have at-home 8-track players, which helped the the medium quite a bit. So it wasn't just in cars. Cars are, are where it got its start, but there were at-home versions of 8-track players too. Now, 
8-tracks had a bit of a heyday in the 1970s. Uh, they kind of peaked at around 1978. But even at their peak, they were still just a fraction of the market of vinyl. And then cassettes were catching up. When 8-tracks first arrived on the scene, the cassette tape already had existed, like I mentioned, but was, for lack of a better word, total pants. Uh, they were just awful with terrible sound quality. But that would change. And ultimately, the smaller form factor of the cassette and the greater capacity that cassette tapes had, like they could hold more material, that would spell doom for the 8-track in the long run. Anyway, even when 8-tracks were at their peak, they were at about $4 billion in revenue, and vinyl was still at around $16 billion. This is adjusting for inflation, by the way. So vinyl was about four times more successful in terms of revenue than 8-tracks. Uh, 8-tracks would never overtake vinyl, but cassettes would. And the cassette was doing pretty well by the late 70s. Uh, they overtook vinyl in 1983, and then cassettes hit their peak as late as 1999 at around $22 billion in revenue. Again, we're talking about by revenue here. Uh, but the compact disc was a big thing, and it had overtaken cassettes way back in 92. This was also when we started to see a decline in music sales. Uh, this would also be around the time when Napster was really active. And so the industry pretty much pounced on piracy as being the reason why music sales took a downturn. And that's when we got all these massive and um, over-enthusiastic, I think is a good word, uh, over-enthusiastic lawsuits against Napster itself and then specifically users of Napster really meant to terrify users so that they wouldn't pirate music. Uh, and it was insane, some of the damages that they sought against various users of, of the platforms. Uh, really painted the music industry in a bad light at the time. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will continue to talk about cassettes and then we'll get into some of the complicated issues when it comes to trying to figure out what these different forms of media, what kind of impact they had on consumers and the music industry in general. But first, let's take this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so cassettes could fit an entire album on them, unlike an 8-track. So that was one bonus for cassettes. They could be rewound. That was another big bonus. Uh, They were more portable than 8-tracks, and the magnetic tape tended to be a bit sturdier than what you found on 8-tracks. The quality of a cassette tape could degrade over time. So, you know, the more you played it, the less good it would sound. But generally speaking, they were perceived as being a bit more durable than the 8-track format. And the music industry treated cassettes a lot like the way they treated vinyl, in that you could buy full-length albums, or you could buy cassette singles, which would contain a few songs but not a whole album. This gave customers some options. They could buy just the singles they liked, or they could get the whole album. I don't know how popular cassette singles were. Like, I have anecdotal things I could talk about, but that's worthless, right? In my own experience, I almost never bought a single. I almost always bought an album instead of a single. But I did have a couple. And there were some downsides to cassettes, a big one being that the amazing album art of the vinyl era was reduced to a tiny fraction of its normal size. Uh, that's one of the things that vinyl collectors often bemoan is that uh, the when vinyl started to have a downturn, it, we started to see the end or the perceived end of an era of amazing cover art. But convenience made up for most of the downsides for most people. And now, when the compact disc started to get popular, see, the compact disc debuted all the way back in the early 80s, but it took a while to get popular. Once that happened, things changed a bit. Uh, Yes, there are different CD formats out there. There are CD singles and things. But here in the States, the full-sized compact disc was pretty much the standard. And in some markets, the only format available. I'm also not going to go into stuff like digital tape because going through all the other at least in the U.S., the other minor media formats would just be overkill. Anyway, the music industry was really focused more on selling full albums at this point and not singles. That meant if you wanted to get that hit song that you really liked, you had to buy the whole dang album, if you were determined to get CD quality, that is. 
Uh, and CDs are an optical format, meaning CD players use lasers, and the lasers read little pits and lands that are on the surface of the CD. Lands, by the way, that's just a, a word that means the span between pits. And the pits and lands correspond with bits, that is, zeros and ones. And songs are represented as digital data. So unlike vinyl, eight tracks and four tracks and cassettes, those are all analog formats, right? Those are not digital. CDs are digital. Now, I'm not going to go into the long debate between digital versus analog because I've talked about it in previous podcasts and they would push this episode into truly epic length. So we're going to leave that debate behind. It's not really important for the purposes of our discussion anyway. So by 1999, the average music customer was spending around $64 on music per year. So assuming you're buying CDs, that's somewhere between three to five CDs per year, roughly. Now, all through this time, the music industry was making huge amounts of money. We're talking like around $40 billion in 1999 in the United States. And much of that was due to the packaging of music, the bundling of music. Like I said, CDs pretty much forced people into buying whole albums, even if they only wanted a single song. Even cassettes, which did have those cassette singles, were priced in such a way that I think a lot of folks just elected to buy the whole album rather than spend more on a per song basis. Like a cassette single would be less expensive than the full cassette. But if you were looking at it on a per song basis, like, like you're looking at it like grocery shopping, like how much is this per ounce? Then a full album was more economically uh, sound, I guess. But in the late 90s, digital music file formats were poised to make a huge difference, to create the opportunity for consumers to buy music in a different way, an unbundled way, because you could start buying songs individually rather than buy full albums. Now, before I get into that, I need to add that the year that recorded music peaked is another one of those things that I find conflicting information on. A lot of sources suggest that it was 99 uh, that's what the Recording Industry Association of America says, that recorded music, as in music you would go out and purchase a copy of, like a physical copy of, peaked in 1999. But that's for the United States. If we actually look at the global market, the peak was even further back in 1996. That was with a global revenue of around $60 billion. As for artist cuts of, you know, how much did artists get for these different kinds of media, those changed over time too. So... Back in 1983, for example, an artist would get about 8% off the sale of an album costing $8.98. This is from a book by Steve Knopper called Appetite for Self-Destruction. Now, 1983 is the same year that the compact disc debuted. It would only, only early adopters really went after CDs that, that, at that point because they could, they were the only ones who could afford it. CD players, when they first came out, were a couple thousand dollars. So it wasn't the sort of thing that the average teenager could rush out and purchase. At least I certainly couldn't. And, uh, once you get to the point where CDs were starting to become the, uh, the standard where cassettes were starting to fade away, uh, an artist's share off a $16.95 CD was just 5%. So remember, the vinyl album, they were getting an 8% cut off of what was like an $8.98 sales price. 
And with the CD, it's a 5% cut of $16.95. So the CD cost more, but the artist got a smaller percentage of the sale. Now, gradually, CD prices increased and artist shares also increased. They went up to 10%. By the way, when it really comes to comparing how much artists earned and how much music was worth across different formats, it quickly becomes a jumbled, chaotic mess. It, I mean, it really does become impossible to, to talk about in any meaningful way. The fact is, there's just not really any rhyme or reason to it when you really look across the years. Pitchfork has a really great article about this that came out in 2015, so it is dated. But the article is titled, How Much Is Music Really Worth? Uh, I recommend that article. That's a good read if you want to learn more about this. And it really lays out that the price of music has gone all over the place over the years. So Pitchfork adjusts all the prices to match $2,015 because that's when the article came out. And you see really crazy amounts like, like a, an eight track album of Jimi Hendrix's Are You Experienced in 1968 cost $53.96 for, for that one album, keeping in mind that eight track albums can't hold as much as vinyl. Uh, it also points out that it would cost $42.43 to buy a cassette tape of Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Waters album in 1970. And when you look at those prices, coughing up about 25 bucks in 2002 for a CD of the Eminem show seems quite the bargain. But wait, it gets more confusing because generally speaking, the price of an album, like a single album, declined between 1979 and 1984 it went from around $22.81 per album in 1979 to $16.81 per album in 1984. But then the price of albums began to climb again uh, up to 2004. And by then it was up to $18.42. Remember, all of these prices have been adjusted for inflation. So it's not just that inflation made these go out. The actual cost was increasing. The cost would drop again to $14.97 by 2009. So Pitchfork came up with these figures by averaging the per unit sales across all media. So that's a combination of all the available options for each album, right? So in the 70s and 80s, you're talking about everything from, you know, averaging together the vinyl, the 8-track, the cassette tape, um, all the different versions that you get of that album, that's where that kind of averages out to. Whereas in the more recent days, it would be things like CDs, maybe cassettes, digital, that kind of stuff. So what I'm getting at is there is no apples to apples that we can really talk about here. In fact, we can't even really do apples to oranges. It's more like we're talking, I don't know, apples to can openers or something like that. But uh, let's let's get on to downloads and streaming and talk about how that disrupted the music industry. Uh, we started to see the unbundling trend with the rise of digital music stores, uh, primarily iTunes, which started in the early 2000s, 2003, I think is when the iTunes store launched. Now, at that stage, artists were getting about 14% off a full album that was purchased off iTunes. And typically, an, a full album off iTunes cost about $9.99. That is according to David Byrne of The Talking Heads. But another format was also going to shake things up, and that was streaming. So let's talk about streaming. Streaming really is what it sounds like. You're streaming data from one source to a destination device. In this case, that data represents audio. 
Uh, one group created a streaming audio technology that they then incorporated into a music service called Tune2.com. That's T-U-N-E-T-O.com. That was an online radio service. They also worked with a more on-demand streaming audio concept that they called Aladdin. In 2001, Listen.com purchased Tune2.com. Listen.com, meanwhile, also owned an online music directory. So pairing the Aladdin concept of this on-demand streaming service with this large music database, Listen.com created a new service that they called Rhapsody. This would be the first streaming music service, and it launched in late 2001. So it actually came out before the iTunes Music Store did. To listen to Rhapsody, customers would have to fork over a monthly subscription fee. Over the following year, Rhapsody built out their library further by making deals with major music labels. The company Real Networks, R-E-A-L Networks, would go on to acquire Listen.com, this stuff happens all the time in tech, particularly during this era, because there's always a bigger fish. And that happened just as the iTunes Music Store launched. And just to bring Napster back into this, in 2016, Rhapsody, which was by this point an independent company, it had, you know, it, its own history is worth an entire episode. Rhapsody would rebrand as Napster. There was no real connection to the original peer-to-peer network that had caused the music industry so much headache back in the, you know, 99 to 2001 time. But it did have the same name. They bought the rights to the name. So we could say that streaming really got started in late 2001, early 2002. Also in 2002, Last.fm would introduce a feature that would become important for later streaming services like Pandora. That feature would track user activity, meaning which songs the user was gravitating toward, and then use that information to make recommendations of music that the listener might not be aware of, but they could potentially really like based on their preferences. Like if you listen to a lot of band A, maybe you'd also like band B that sounds a bit like band A. Pandora would take this concept and push it much harder, growing out of something that was called the Music Genome Project. Uh, You've probably heard me talk about metadata in the past. Metadata is information that is about information. For example, for each episode of Tech Stuff, I create metadata, and the metadata includes a brief description of the episode. It also includes keywords that relate to the subject matter. So if you're searching for a specific Tech Stuff topic, uh, it's more likely to pop up. Metadata helps computers contextualize content in some way because computers aren't natively able to understand what content is. So with songs, the Music Genome Project would break down a lot of the basic components of the music in order to, quote-unquote, understand what that music was. And actual human beings were doing this work, by the way. It wasn't like the computer was scanning a song and saying, oh, this song has you know a, a very strong power lead guitar. So the Pandora employees would include tags of songs like female vocalist or up-tempo beat or long guitar solo or whatever. You know, they'd use different ways to describe the music. And the Pandora service would later use those descriptions to create dynamic playlists of music for listeners based on a seed song or artist. So you might go in there and say, like, I want to create a Pandora radio station that uses They Might Be Giants as the seed band. And it might pull 
other artists, like, I don't know, Bare Naked Ladies, which, you know, you could argue whether or not that's similar to They Might Be Giants, but there's a lot of overlap in the listening habits there. That's kind of the idea. So the listener puts in the starting point, the music genome project bit says, okay, what are some of the characteristics of the song and or artist and what other similar artists and songs can I draw from in order to create a playlist? It was and is pretty darn cool. Well, we're going to talk a bit more about Pandora in particular and the (laughs) tribulations that it faced when it came to figuring out things like licensing fees after we come back from this break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Pandora's features and similar ones that were designed to do, you know, pretty much the same thing, created the backbone for lots of streaming services. 
Of course, not all streaming services are dynamic. Some follow more of a broadcast model. For example, I listen to the iHeartRadio Broadway station a lot. That's more like a streaming radio station where they're doing the programming on their side ahead of time. It's not like it's just dynamically pulling the next song. Uh, if I listen to a Pandora station, like a Pandora Broadway station, I'm hearing music that is at least in part curated based upon whatever I used to seed that station. Now, when it comes to music streaming, the music industry would treat that kind of consumption similar in a way to radio broadcast. Similar, but not identical. In fact, in many cases, the industry would effectively penalize streaming platforms, and at multiple points, companies like Pandora face the possibility of having their entire business model threatened. All right, so this, this part, the story gets even more messy than it already has been. Previously, I mentioned ASCAP. Uh, so ASCAP and other performance rights organizations seek out licensing fees and royalties, right? And there are certain percentages that they seek out for radio broadcasts where they will negotiate a percentage that they'll look to claim for songs that are broadcast on radio. In the early days of internet radio, there was a real imbalance between what terrestrial radio stations were expected to pay and what streaming services were expected to pay. In some cases, streaming services were expected to pay twice as much for streaming a song as the radio would be uh, charged for broadcasting a song. And you also see like the, the difference in operation makes a huge uh, effect here too, right? Because radio station uh, broadcasts a song. They might have to do sort of a, a Nielsen review to figure out how many people are listening to that radio station, right? But streaming services can theoretically anyway, track exactly how many people are listening to a specific song and while a song might broadcast over the radio three or four times in a day, uh, you know, how do you count that? Do you count that as a single performance? Do you count that against the percentage of, you know, how many people are listening to that radio station? Uh, with streaming services, there was no limit to how many times a song could be streamed in a day. It would all depend on how many people were wanting to listen to that song. But this got really complex Thanks lar and largely because of the ruling of a, a U.S. agency called the Copyright Royalty Board. That formed in 2004 as part of the Copyright Royalty and Distribution Reform Act here in the United States. The board includes a panel of three judges who, quote, oversee the copyright laws statutory licenses, which permit qualified parties to use multiple copyrighted works without obtaining separate licenses from each copyright owner, end quote. Because obviously, if you were running a broadcast service, it would be impossible to seek out a license for each copyright holder and still, you know, have a service. Now, in 2007, the CRB created new regulations for online royalties, which many platforms claimed would mean those platforms would have to pay out more in royalties than they were making in ad revenue, meaning the royalties were actually threatening the very business of internet radio. Uh, a lot of companies got upset with the CRB, including the one I work for. Of course, back in those days, it was not known as iHeartRadio. It went by the name Clear Channel Communications. Now, the rates for streaming started out at $0.0008 per play. So not even a penny per play per listener back, uh, or per listener rate, I should say, back in 2006 but it would increase all the way up to 0.0019 per play per listener rate in 2010. And that's where it would stay. Now, despite the proclamations that this would bring an end to streaming radio online, it didn't. 
But then it was also complicated to just keep track of which tracks were playing and how often they were playing on and which platform they were playing. So it really got hard to determine if streaming platforms were actually paying out royalties properly or not. In fact, most people guessed that they weren't, that artists weren't getting what they were owed um, and that there were a couple of different reasons for this. Some of them were kind of honest ones in that it was genuinely hard to know whom you were supposed to pay. And others were maybe that some of these platforms were relying on the fact that it was so complicated and opaque that they could kind of get away with not paying. Now, in 2018, U.S. Congress passed the Music Modernization Act in an effort to get a handle on this problem. This set up a nonprofit agency called the Mechanical License Collective, or MLC. It starts to sound like a dystopian science fiction novel. Anyway, the MLC is responsible for maintaining a database of the owners of mechanical licenses for copyrighted works. The MLC collects licensing fees from music streaming services, and the database makes it much easier for these streaming services to identify the owners of the licenses so that the streaming platform can make sure that the right person is credited and ends up getting what they are owed. Heading up to 2018, uh, this was a really a big challenge, again, because there wasn't this centralized database, so the MLC was working to change that. The MLC is also responsible for paying out those fees to the proper license holders. Uh, there's actually a couple steps in that as well. Streaming services can still negotiate directly with license holders, but otherwise they have to pay a compulsory fee to the MLC to do uh, streaming of those songs. But... What does this mean for the actual license holder, the artist, or rather the composer, typically? How much are they getting paid? Uh, well, let's say you got yourself an album, and that album is available on a service like Spotify. And first, Spotify generates revenue through subscriptions and such, and takes a big cut of that incoming revenue. So Spotify takes around 30% of all the revenue. The rest goes into a pool that gets divided up among all the other parties involved and getting music on Spotify. So that includes your record label, uh, your music publisher, your distributor, and you. And depending upon how frequently folks were streaming your particular album, your pool might be much smaller than someone else's. Because um, you're all sharing that amount, right? The 70% that's left over after Spotify takes its, its cut, that's left for everybody to divvy up based upon how frequently their, you know, those songs were played on the platform. So what this means is that by the time everyone else has taken their cut, there's very little left to go to the artist. Plus record labels have been a little opaque in how they pay out artists. So it makes it even more complicated. Uh, Business insider reported that an artist might receive somewhere between 0. 0.0033 to 0.0054 per stream. So less than a cent per stream. Uh, in fact, it would mean that someone would have to listen to a song multiple times before, or several people would have to listen to the same song before an artist would even see a single penny. That penny would still get split with the publisher and other entities like ASCAP. That money, by the way, also, like I said, does not go directly to the artist from Spotify. Instead, it goes to whichever distributor handles your music. Uh, this, the distributor receives the royalties from the streaming platform, then pays more likely your record label, and then your record label will eventually pay you on whatever schedules all of these different entities are working on. So payment can be a bit erratic. This is largely why the live event space is so important for musicians, because uh, while you can make money streaming songs on pl 
platforms like Spotify, you need to be really popular. I mean, you need to have thousands and thousands of people listening to your songs uh, in order for that to really become something where you can live off of it. So really streaming is, you know, at least getting a decent revenue from streaming is really limited to extremely popular acts already. If you are a small independent act, you're probably not getting a significant amount of money from streaming. Uh, you might get more by selling your music directly through platforms like Bandcamp, or maybe you're getting a regular support system through something like Patreon, or maybe you're just making money by playing live venues, selling merchandise. Maybe you're even pressing your own vinyl and selling it. That gets really expensive too. <laughs> it's If you've ever wondered, if you've ever gone to a show and they've sold vinyl and it's for like 25 bucks or something, if you've ever wondered why it's $25 to buy a vinyl album, it's because producing vinyl independently is really expensive. Uh, you have to pay a certain amount of money just to get the, the master produced. And then on top of that, the actual pressing of vinyl costs a good amount of money. Uh, typically it, it gets a little more economical if you're producing larger runs, but then you have to sell more in order for those larger runs to be worthwhile, right? Otherwise you've got a garage filled with vinyl that you can't move. Uh, so yeah, it's a complicated thing. The recorded and streaming businesses of music really t tough, like specifically tough on artists uh, particularly if you're an artist who didn't write your music, then you're really not looking at a whole lot of money and royalties. The person who wrote your music might be looking at some, especially if the song goes really you know, super popular and viral or something. But otherwise, uh, it's a very tough gig. And yeah, it's super complicated. Uh, it always has been. The music companies typically are the ones that end up making out like bandits here. You're, you're talking about like, you know, billion dollars, billions of dollars in revenue every year. But they're also the companies that are promoting artists and spending money to try and get people to be aware of the artists that are under their label. So there's a trade-off there. Uh, still, I, I suspect a lot of record executives out there probably make more money than, um, than maybe they need to. Like maybe some of that money should be trickling down to the folks who are actually making the music as well as, you know, the people responsible for making sure that the recording of that music is good. Like all the technicians who are working there, I think that probably there needs to be a bit more redistribution of that. But, you know, I, I feel that way about pretty much every industry everywhere that, that the people who are responsible for the work deserve more credit than what they typically get. Well, there you go. There are a couple of episodes about the music industry and how technology affects the way the business of music works. There's more to say here, by the way, for example, the rise of the MP3 would end up changing the way music sounds quite a bit. Uh, that was largely because the way that MP3 files compress data often also incorporate compression of music, uh, compression in the sense of reduced dynamics. So you have a, a reduction in the difference between the softest sounds and the loudest sounds. That means that you start to have more, you know, music that has more of a uniform loudness to it. And that lack of dynamic feature in the music 
is something that was driven by technology. Some people bemoan that because they say, well, now the music is less complex, less nuanced, and uh, and it, it, it can all start to sound very similar to each other. Even when you're talking about different instrumentation and everything, the fact that you have this kind of standard loudness becomes an issue. So there are other elements that we could talk about as far as how technology has affected music. And of course, there's also the whole story of electrification of music, everything from electric guitars to the rise of synthesizers and uh, you know syn- uh, synthetic drum kits and that kind of thing. Uh, but that would just go down more rabbit holes. And plus, I've covered some of that in the past. But if you do want me to talk more about music and tech and how the two are so closely related, let me know. You can still let me know on Twitter. <laughs> As I record this, we're waiting to find out if Twitter actually does completely, you know, agree to the sale to Elon Musk. That's something that's happening just as I'm recording this episode. Um, and if that does happen, I might, I might just, I might just peace out of uh, Twitter for a while. Uh, but even in that case, I will make sure that there will be another means of contacting me. If you do want to contact me on Twitter, the handle for the show is Tech Stuff HSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 